When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. Flying here. If you see me kill an insect, you know, just don't see me do that. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's the interview series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org, Consequence, and the Consequence Podcast Network. Thanks as always for making your way here, checking out the series. Uh, please do hit that subscribe button. Uh, you get three new interviews every single week. New one every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. A great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, NPR, YouTube for the video versions, or anywhere you get your podcast from. Subscribe to Kyle Meredith with. That's me. I'm Kyle Meredith today, hanging out once again with Paul Banks of Interpol. We're going to be talking about their brand new record called The Other Side of Make Believe. It's an album that looks at the uh, the fables we tell ourselves, uh, how conspiracy theories work their way into our lives, and the allure that uh, that fiction holds over truth. Uh, Paul's going to dig into the uh, the guileless angels and, and villainous characters that populate the record, as well as his uh, as his lyrical writing in a subconscious form. And we'll talk a little bit about Meet Me in the Bathroom. This was the uh, the book that came out uh, a handful of years ago, told the story. Of the uh, of the early two thousands indie rock explosion that you know also had the Strokes and and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and uh, it's got a documentary on the way anyway so we're going to talk about that a little bit as well so let's jump into this we're discussing the other side of make believe it's Kyle Meredith with Interpol hi there thank you for that yeah yeah well I, I mean you're you're one of my favorite groups and it's let me tell you it's still exciting. Every single time I hear that there's a new Interpol record, like I, I still get those feels that I've been getting for the past, you know, 20 years or so. And this new one, The Other Side of Make Believe, uh, you haven't let us down yet. And and seriously, your lyrics and poetry are off the charts. I've always been a fan of that, too. But there's something next level happening here. I, it's not a question. I'm just throwing wow. you the compliments. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. That's really, yeah, that's really cool. And I think that's all we hope for as a band is that people have that, you know, excitement when we drop a new record. Yeah, let, let, let's get into it. I'll start with the title there, The Other Side of Make Believe, because I do think that's sort of an entry point into uh, some of what we're getting at here on this record. What is the other side? Are, are we talking about the opposite of make believe? Are we talking about the darker side of make believe? What did you have in mind there? Yeah, I think it's more of the sort of like the flip side of the darker side or the, you know, the the downside uh and i think it's kind of just sort of in reference to well i'll tell you what it's in the song passenger i feel like which is where that lyric it's a it's a lyric from the song passenger it's a lyric i think that would apply more to one individual's i don't know like self-deception or you know like it's 
it's a lot about kind of narratives that we tell ourselves and the sort of truth versus fiction and the allure that sometimes fiction holds over truth because maybe the truth is too dull or too dark or too you know harsh to really process so we as a species you know are really prone to generating stories and, and narratives so I feel like that can apply in the individual level of like you know self-deception rather than sort of facing a harsh truth or I think as we've demonstrated in like recent modern world like although information is theoretically accessible to everybody you'd think that we'd have some kind of like foundational truths that everyone is in accordance with but somehow less than ever do we have that uh, and I feel like a lot of that in recent history has had to do again with kind of like truth maybe being a little dull or I don't know just like truth being really in in like a slippery position where like nobody really I think there's a lot of there's a uh, a dearth of um trust anyway so I think the the lyric and the title um sort of are like one is the personal and then I think it kind of expands on the whole album it's like there's themes of like information and and stories and and you know things like that and deception so that's really where it's coming from yeah the psychological part of that too I mean not to get too far into that but you know for some folks to think I know something that everybody else doesn't know like they have to they have to know something that everybody else doesn't know and I you know I, I think that a lot of where conspiracy theories uh you know the past especially the past few years come along with that but but there's that interesting word in passenger it's it's not just that title you use the word fables and you've got a song on here called fables as well like how does that play into it because i feel like uh, it, from what i'm getting anyway it's kind of going in that same direction uh why you'd bring specifically those words up twice um i think for the yeah, the very same reasons that i was just sort of you know musing on i think it's like there's like this great purpose to the way that we string ideas together to form cohesive meaning out of chaos. And I think that can be how we've teach, taught ourselves great truths throughout the ages, maybe in the form of fables. But then I feel like it's also like there's this connotation to a fable, which is a bit like a fairy tale. And then it sort of like merges into this other idea of, you know, stories as entertainment. But then when it becomes kind of like, uh more harmful than good uh, even though it's like this sort of innate propensity that we have and it's like a function of our great imaginations as a species but it can kind of bump us or bite us in the ass sometimes when we you know using it as a way of hiding from realities and i think you know just one thing without to go into this rabbit hole but like just with conspiracy theories and stuff i do think it's like in some instances it's like more reassuring almost that there's there's someone in charge that is making decisions and th those decisions are evil but if you find those people you can kind of like you know undo these things but in reality sometimes and sometimes obviously there are great conspiracies that can be unearthed and then other times it's like just more boring that like there's like just chaos and like no one really knows what the fuck's going on and that's like far more uncomfortable as a thing or like that mother nature can kind of come along and just like wipe everybody out is like very uncomfortable and it's almost more reassuring to be like, oh, there's like some evil villains that are, you know, at play here who could be theoretically caught and brought to account, as opposed to just like a force of nature can just like wipe us all out from one day to the next. So anyway, I think it's like kind of all of those sort of thoughts, which I even myself kind of like waver back and forth between, you know, what I even myself think is plausible versus, you know, not plausible. So it's, you know, I'm in it as well, you know, this kind of like weird era so, so you know, with, with the characters in those songs who, you know, we talk about fables, 
like what do the guileless angels represent uh i guess what's it like um uh i would say in that there's like poem and what is it like we're guided by our better angels like there's some like quote that i think they use even in like saving private ryan i think it's kind of like you know i think that speaks to sort of like our better nature and um yeah our, our more sort of like um altruistic um tendencies you know that goodness exists i think is those those are the godless angels you know no agenda just like those those things that we do selflessly it's interesting you kind of finding the balance uh, not the balance the um the, the both sides of it because you do have the guileless angels and you have someone like mr credit uh which is kind of what have been one of my favorite uh -huh. songs on the record because mr credit to me comes off like like mr credit wants to be seen as a guileless angel but uh, I, th I think you even said in another place like uh, you, but you can't trust him yeah 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 that's a that's an interesting character in that song and that's yeah, that song is interesting because that comes from a working title that was uh, one of Daniel's working titles, and I believe he got that from a Fritz Lang film called M. Um, and yeah, Mr. Credit is dead and buried uh, is a lyric is a is a quote from the film, and so Daniel like had it titled as Mr. Credit, and then he told us that that was like the line of dialogue, and I just sort of incorporated it and kind of expanded from there. But I do think that the character, uh, especially in the chorus, is a sort of a um, yeah, it's like it's it sounds like a good guy, but you know he's he's not. Yeah. No, it's fun. I, I want to quickly pull up one more track here. I know we kind of running short on time, but Renegade Hearts. You know, I was talking about those lyrics. Call me from any age and hope that godly will help to steer. Subliminal, we turn the page, but you can't save the programmable fears. That's like you made me work on this record a little bit too. Like <laughs> to set it kind of to sit with those but but even in that song like you've got eternity infinity and a million years you know as as words in three different lines here uh what are you envisioning at that point like i'd love to know how that works within the bigger story that we're talking about i think in that song i love that song and i think that it's um almost kind of like uh it's a little bit like you know three generations post-apocalyptic you know, like multiple civilizations into the future. Um, and then I think it sort of gets anchored more clearly in the outro as being, I like this sort of like, um, I think sometimes I play with love stories, but that the context wherein that love is existing or surviving is maybe a little bit like post-apocalyptic. So in that song, it's kind of, yeah, envisioning a, a future where stock is being taken but it's like not even necessarily this future but maybe like the next one on and i think it's just kind of like yeah i don't even consciously um implement the same kind of like themes throughout the lyrics of the song it's sort of like songs almost like want to be something uh and i just kind of like let that happen and so that song i think started with the the lyric um the serpent spins and uh yeah just kind of went from there but it's it's true. It's interesting for me. Like the the lyrics are always kind of from a very authentic place for me, but also somewhere that's like very hard for me to really unpack them. And I've I've never had a great inclination to unpack them. And I think as I've gone on in my career, I'm even more interested in sort of just like what comes out of like the subconscious. And when I'm presented with music that speaks to me, like such as the music that Daniel writes, like these ideas kind of like they come first in the form of melody. And as I've gone through my career, it's like the, the time it takes me to have the melody versus when I get the lyric 
has like the gap has narrowed to sometimes now I just get them all at the same time. And I feel like there's something very, on the one hand, you could, you could definitely argue as a writer, well, like, well, then you should work more. But on the other hand, I think because the form is like essentially, you know, rock music, I feel like there's almost something that's been really, I'm happy that I've chosen instead to kind of cultivate that instinct of just like something's in the subconscious that's coming out and this is it. And I feel like in some ways, maybe there's even more meaning in that. And so it's on the one hand, difficult to unpack, but on the, on the other hand, I feel like it is very rich of meaning for me. It's interesting. You know, we were talking about it before the interview, uh, REM, Michael Stipe you know, criticized a little bit for some people that they couldn't understand his lyrics. And he said, for the most part, he didn't put a lot of thought into them in the early days until he realized people were getting so much out of them. He thought, oh, I better work at this a little bit more and put that meaning there. I appreciate that meaning, I think is what I'm getting yeah. at there, because when it all comes out like that, like it is, there's, there's some really great poetry all, all throughout this. Thank you very much. Yeah. And the way it works with that music, uh, you know, it's almost carnivalesque sometimes with the guitar parts. Um, it's it's such an interesting, playful thing that you all have going on. And, and the drums, I know, again, I'm running out of time here, but uh, all three of you, it's just the way it's working together. It's such an interesting record. Um, yeah, I could go on oh. about that. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think Flood Flood really helped us get the best performances out of ourselves and out of each other too. I think he really helped kind of um, guide the chemistry. I, I'll, I'll close with this quickly. I, I know that uh, um, Meet Me in the Bathroom, which tells the story, of course, of, uh, of the early days of the New York scene is finally getting a documentary. Uh, have you been able to watch that yet? Is that something on your radar? I didn't read it and I didn't watch it. Um, I feel, you know, the author, Lizzie Goodman, is a close friend of mine, and I participated in the book because I trust her, and she was there, and I think she's very, very intelligent, and I felt like if anyone was going to do an, you know, authoritative uh, depiction of that moment in time, she was absolutely qualified to be that person, so I kind of gave myself over to her with a lot of honesty, but I feel like that's the kind of honesty that, like, I don't even want to read <laughs> what I told her, and, uh, you know, and I, and I also worked with the filmmakers and I had a real sense of trust that they knew what they were doing, that they were coming from the right place as well. But, you know, it's like when you hear yourself on an answering machine, but like 5,000 times worse <laughs> when you read yourself in print or hear yourself in a film, at least for me. So I, I don't really intend to watch it, but I think it's uh, legit. I can't wait to see it. I, I loved the book. I did a uh, bit of a Bible for a uh, certain times anyway, research. Cool. Uh, Paul, congratulations again. The new Interpol record, The Other Side of Make Believe, is is fantastic. I love it. I love you guys every single time. Dude, it was great catching up, and uh, and thanks for taking the time today. Thank you very much, and thank you for those kind of words. Shout out to uh, Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Uh, I, I live in Kentucky, in the Midwest, and allergies, yeah, I suffer. When I say I suffer from allergies, I suffer from allergies. And around here, everyone I know deals with allergies to some degree. And for a long time, I thought it was just something that I would have to live with, which is a real problem um, for anything, but especially when you're a radio host. It affects my voice, it affects my mood, it affects everything. And I feel like I've tried every, I've tried all the medicines. Some of them work better than others, but there's, there's never a perfect one out there, especially because some of them take forever to actually work and some of them don't work at all. And then there's Astapro, the fastest solution to nasal allergy symptoms. 
It's what I use now, and it's definitely changed my life. Astapro is the first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Uh, Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. With all the pollen in the air, with all the dust around the the corners of the house, uh, even with uh, the allergies I have from my dog, Astapro has been the nasal spray that has helped me with all of my allergies. And it can help you too. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Now, Paul and I last spoke uh, just back in 2020. Uh, he had just put out uh, an album for his, uh, his side project called Muzz. So he took us through the history with his uh, his new bandmate, uh, John, uh, Josh Kaufman, that stretched all the way back to their elementary school days in Spain. We also got to talk about his relationship with Matt Barrick, who played, of course, in The Walkman and, uh, and Jonathan Fire Eater, as well as Banks and Steels alongside RZA. Uh, all that and, and actually a whole lot more. So I'm going to include that one here. This is part two of Kyle Meredith with Paul Banks of Interpol. Hi, it's Paul. Let me start with the compliments then, because Muzz, it is quite the surprise for, for me. And, and what, I think beautiful is the right word. Uh, it's it's a dark record, of course, I guess, but it's still really interesting to listen to. So I want to compliment you on, on how much I've enjoyed checking out this record. Thank you. Yeah, and I guess to, much. To, to get the story behind it too, because, you know, the creation story in this, as I, as I read what's, caught me really off guard is you and Josh go all the way back to childhood in school together, but that school is in Spain. And I thought, what are the odds of that? How, how did that happen? Yeah. I mean, I was living in Madrid with my family from age 12 to 15 or seventh through 10th grade and going to the American school of Madrid. And Josh showed up, I think it was my sophomore year and was sat next to me in English class. I guess we had lockers next to each other as well. And my memory is that we would crack each other a lot, you know, crack each other up a lot in class and get in a little bit of trouble with the teacher. And that then shortly thereafter, there was some kind of talent show and Josh played Stairway to Heaven. Uh, And I'd been playing guitar for a couple of years at that point since seventh grade. And he was like the greatest guitar player I'd ever seen, just like from another planet, even just playing Stairway. So I think when you're that age, kind of like 15, and you're an aspiring rock musician, if there's somebody else that you know you think is cool who completely shreds on the guitar, it's like an automatic kind of bond and a magnetism. So we were just really close friends, and he sort of became a guitar mentor for me throughout my life as just being somebody with oodles more talent than I have on a guitar. <laughs> He's like in a very special group that I think... Uh, 
Mike from Ratatat, I put him in this group, mm -hmm. uh, and and Josh. Kind of, <laughs> it's like really not a long list of people that I consider to just be. You know, they got like a triple helping of talent with regards to their instrument. So he's always been really a phenomenal player. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's still like you know, there's there's eight billion people on the planet to have, to have, and. and for the amount of people that we, you know, make friends with in our childhood to still be able to be creatively working with them in this capacity all these years later, there's something special about that, I guess. That's that's it's got to be a really rare instance. I mean, it feels that way to me. It feels pretty cosmic to me. It feels quite beautiful. But I, I've always kind of had a sense like I, I have some pretty phenomenal friends, to be honest. <laughs> I was lucky. Yeah, he's just one of them. And the other one there, of course, in the bat, we're talking about uh, uh, Matt as well. And, you know, my knowledge of you all and Matt's relationship, of course, is just because of, of what I've read with the scene and everything. Matt goes back to Jonathan Fireeater and the Walkman. And and what I like about this partnership, and I know it's not the first time you guys have, have worked together, but of all the bands that come out in that scene that we've all, you know, read about and known about for the decades now in that New York scene scene, you and the Interpol and the Walkman seem to have been like the closest musical brothers, I guess is what I'm getting to. There was always something about your all's music that complemented each other. And it was, was that something that brought you and Matt together in, in a natural sense? I mean, I, I think in a way, yeah, the, the Walkmen were always, I mean, I, I had seen Jonathan Fireeater play with Blonde Redhead in New York way back in the day. And then when the Walkmen formed Interpol and the Walkmen like shared a stage a couple of times, I think maybe like a New York showcase show or maybe we were just on the same bill together and just i was always a huge fan of the walkman and matt's one of my all-time favorite drummers and i feel like anyone who's ever seen them live kind of knows you just sort of can't help but gravitate your gaze towards you know the guy in the back just kind of going ham like animal <laughs> from the muppets and i think but he's also what i think is really special about his role in muzz is that i think you really see another side of his musicianship where it's not kind of all that propulsive heavy rock you know, style drumming, it's like often really minimal and just kind of like, I've, I've referred to it before as like painfully tasteful. <laughs> painfully tasteful. It's a, there's, there's a moment on the record, I, I think, really where the two of you all's, uh, really, you know, um, partnership shines. And, and for me, that's on the song, How Many Days. Oh, cool. Just hearing what you're doing, locking in with those drums in, in such an interesting way. I didn't know if there was a, a story behind that, but I thought I'd ask. Well, How Many Days is was a key song in the history of Muzz because Matt and I were playing together with the Banks and Steels project. Mm -hmm. He was um, our drummer. And so he and I at one point were just kind of rehearsing and jamming and working on some of my solo material. And one of them was How Many Days. And we he got that really crazy beat going. And that was kind of like the first time where it was sort of like, OK, cool. Like there's something that we could do here. Then he and I were rehearsing on another occasion. He said, you know, I've done a, multiple sessions with your old friend Josh and I really like working with that guy. Maybe we should call him to join in on this. And it was just one of those things where it kind of, without any hesitation, was like, absolutely, let's definitely do that. Then Josh came in and then everything kind of, then Muzz really started to take shape. But uh, yeah, How Many Days was one of the very first pieces. And here you are now, you know, with another trio. And I know, you know, the Interpol wasn't always a trio and, and, and now it is. But is there something that works for you with three? I mean, three is the magic number, right? I guess they say that in bands. It does feel, <laughs> it, it does feel like a good kind of number because you can't really get stalemates on issues but i feel like it really just boils down to chemistry you know i think we we're fortunate enough with the, our temperaments and our personalities and our experience to i think be very amenable collaborators 
and I think there's just no there's no tension, there's no weird ego stuff. It's all just kind of positive, creative energy, which is something that you know I think I'm I'm a little doing a little bit better of bringing that sort of energy to all my projects, in, including Interpol. Um, but it's kind of a state of mind that I've arrived at over many years of collaborating, and I feel like same with these guys. Like they've just we've all been here, done that, and it's kind of you know, an epiphany to me is sort of like the, the whole process can be joyful. I feel like I've often been in a mode of sort of suffering and brooding for my work. Not, I mean, not always, but it's just this was a very fun project for me. And I think it's kind of informing my other collaborations as well. As it's written, too, you've mostly been, you know, the lyricist in, in everything and you've written your vocal parts. And I guess that's not the exact way that Muzz happened. How has it been different for you being vocally directed and, and having to sing someone else's lyrics? Because it's not the same as doing a cover, right? I mean, this is, you know, from from the start. Agreed. Yeah, we we didn't do a great job with our bio on this one. Uh, we I think <laughs> I think we're a little misleading, but I think it's good because it does prompt a conversation. But basically, like I did write all the lyrics, but what was different is that they were there was many instances where Josh was just kind of not feeling one of my lyrics, and so he would say, "That's kicking me out," and then I would kind of go back to the drawing board and rework a lyric. Um, and kind of like found that over time that there's sort of facets of my style musically that just doesn't really work for Matt and Josh. And it's kind of like poses or postures or kind of writing and character that I, that I might use and enjoy using in other outlets that for these guys is kind of like not that. Mm -hmm. So what was particularly interesting for me was just these conversations that I'd have with my bandmates about like um, abstract approaches to lyric writing or like if someone doesn't like a lyric rather than Josh saying kind of like use these words he would sort of say what if you just kind of go off on a tangent using imagery that's evocative relative to the narrative rather than continuing the narrative in a literal way so just like like workshoppy kind of stuff with uh -huh. lyric writing which was which made it all a lot more collaborative than what I'm really used to uh in a really fun way and I'm, I've actually always been open to feedback with regards to my lyrics it's just I haven't really gotten all that much <laughs> in my career so this I think Josh had a real vision of like what kind of spoke to him and doesn't speak to him. And so there was not a few instances of him kind of saying this one moment is kicking me out. Of course, you know, while we're on the lyrics, I'll bring that up because one thing you have talked about is, you know, because it was written over such a long period of time, I, I would find it interesting that you would find a thread at all. But you've talked about there have been musings on mental health. I think that was the phrase you used. That's really interesting to me because because that's coming up more and more in a lot of, of music and in, in a lot of songs, but also in the wider artistic conversation than I think has in the past. Uh, I know it's being talked a lot about it in, in interviews. Do you find that that's something that's actually being discussed more in the art uh, the artist community itself? I don't know. Depression or mood swings and, and art making kind of go hand in hand. So I feel like it's always been between the lines of almost every medium. There's some sort of uh, something that's not quite hunky-dory going on. I think that's at the root of a lot of art. So I, I feel like among artists or in an artistic like context, I think it's always been present. I feel like it is kind of just a little bit more mainstream. And I kind of commend people that have been of late coming forward and talking about, you know, mental health issues and depression and volunteering that information about themselves. I, I think it's really commendable. There's a couple of athletes that I follow that have been really candid and a few, you know, musicians. And I think it's good because I do think mental health is still something that is it's I wouldn't say that it's stigmatized like it used to be. But I think it's not entirely well understood. I think it's hard for people to grasp the idea of it being a, a condition like 
you know, diabetes, for instance, or disease. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think people coming coming forward and, and being very vocal about their own experience with depression, for instance, is is helpful. I, I don't want to push this in in a direction maybe that it's not intended to go. But considering the timeline of when these songs were put out, is it a coincidence that this was recorded over the years that our political arena was also tossed upside down? Because for a lot of folks, that is where some of this depression is coming from. Yeah, but that's depression with a reason. I think, you know, kind of some many, many issues with, you know, chemical or or, um, clinical depression is like there's no there's no reason. There's no element in your life that's causing it. It's just the thing that's happening. But I feel like, you know, times of great political turmoil and upheaval are a great time for art. So I think I think there's definitely yeah, people have a reason to be depressed and angsty. And I think that'll be, uh, you know, good fuel for a lot of art and maybe some kind of like real, um, you know, maybe we'll get back to some kind of punk rock style music. I'm a big fan of this band Surfboard. I don't know if you know. Uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love their energy. You get that from one of the songs with a, I don't know, I took it from one of the songs, I should say, with a Red Western Sky. I mean, that, it sounds like it's actually begging for direction in the lyrics. Yeah, I think for sure. It's a, like it's like a vision quest kind of song. And I think that idea of, yeah, sort of surrender and opening to, you know, I mean, that song is also kind of like mystical and, and mystical spiritual, mm-hmm. which is just a, a vein that I enjoy indulging in creatively and conceptually. It's like something I like it resonates with me, that kind of archetype of the wandering in the desert and self-discovery and some ayahuasca. <laughs> well, I think that one and, and even the imagery that you're saying leads to, you know, some of the parts about the sounds on this, too. And maybe it was Josh talking in a previous interview about, you know, stretching for classic sounds. And I didn't exactly know what he meant by that, but I do find that. Even thinking back to the only other time that we've talked during the last Interpol record, I, I think I was complimenting you on, I could tell there was a change in your vocal style even, that it was more of this Sinatra style of crooning or whatever and, and matching that with what you guys are doing musically. I mean, were you looking at any musical touch points when you were talking about these songs? Were there any sounds that you were looking to grab onto? Yeah, I think... I mean, I think Dave Fridman and who worked with Interpol on the last record uh, and Josh kind of had in common a sense of wish wanting me to explore a little less of a pushy vocal style, which I kind of think, you know, in being in rock bands, I sort of like a, a shoutier delivery. And I think it's been a good exercise for me to kind of pull it back and explore that facet of my singing. And I think, yeah, both the last Interpol record and this record have been good ways for me to explore that. Uh, I think in terms of kind of touch points that we talked about, uh, Leonard Cohen was a big one, mm-hmm. Neil Young, Bob Dylan, um, Josh is way into the band. And so and in terms of kind of like classic recording techniques, it's sort of basically not utilizing all the tricks of uh, Pro Tools or, or just sort of like, you know, the software approach that you can take with a lot of music now, of kind of quantizing everything and or using samples from you know bundles that come with your with your music program we were sort of using you know a real farfisa and a real organ and a real Wurlitzer and really nice amplifiers really nice microphones and really nice instruments and just kind of keeping the signal chain really vintage so there's just nothing on it that should make you kind of feel like oh okay this is definitely recorded between 2015 and 2020 and i think there's a lot of kind of telltale technology and sounds that could be on a record that would give that away 
and we were very intentionally not, you know, using any of that. That's probably why I felt, you know, such a quick connection to it too, because it is real. And, and there are those moments of it. I, I got to quickly compliment before I forget um, the song Evergreen and, and that groove that's going on in Evergreen. I, I really think this is probably my favorite on the record. I mean, those guitars sound so good, what you guys are doing. So thanks, man. I got to, I got to, you know, I, I don't know how much of this kind of shit I should volunteer, but most of the guitar stuff you're hearing is going to be Josh. That's just throwing it out okay. there. The compliments, you know, to the, to the whole group on that record. It's, um, you know, or that song, especially it's, it's so much good stuff happening there. Cool, but, man. I love that one. Thanks. Yeah. Now that you've got multiple groups, uh, and, and I don't know who's active and who's not, and I don't know if that's important to the question or not, but do you feel a service or obligation to keep them alive, to keep them all alive or, or does some of them mean to have a stopping point? It's, I don't feel an obligation to keep them alive. I just kind of want them all to be alive. So I feel like, you know, Banks and Steels, I would love us to make another record if and when time uh, and scheduling permits. Interpol will definitely be making more records. Uh, and that's, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, loyalty to the fans and to the band, but kind of most, the biggest motivator for me is just that I like being in Interpol and uh, making music with those guys. So... There will be more work um, in all of my projects, is my hope. It looks like it's a lot of fun to juggle all those balls, I think is what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's cool to keep up with. Uh, Paul, I certainly appreciate what you're doing. I, I love hearing this, and especially when a new surprise comes around like this. Uh, I, I'm so into this record, so uh, I'm glad you guys did it. Thank you for the music, and uh, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about it, too. It's a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, man. Take care out there, and we'll okay. see you around. All right. Likewise. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tullest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. All right, how about one more? Uh, this one goes back to 2018. We were talking about the Interpol record Marauder right here, uh, as well as touring uh, Turn on the Bright Light for its 15th anniversary, being inspired by uh, Sinatra era crooners, and quite a bit more. Part three of Kyle Meredith with Paul Banks of Interpol. Hi there. And congrats on the new album. Thank you very much. It's always a fun little phrase that I'm working on. Congrats on the new album. I think you all are towed that a lot, but I'm never exactly <laughs> sure what that means to an artist. That's customary. That's, that's pretty... No, no, much appreciated. I think it's sort of like, uh, yeah, congrats on... Um, it's, it's, I think it's the right comment. Yeah, okay. It's like, you plans, did it! Plans well. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Bringing something into the world. That's right. I, I kind of want to start where I know it's. it seems like a lot of people have started, and that's in the last couple years, because it seems like the history has been swirling around you all before this. And I don't know if that's more of a projection from from like my side of things, from like the interviewer's side of things, or if you really feel that. But but with the 15th anniversary of Turn on the Bright Lights and doing that tour, with the meet me in the bathroom kind of putting the whole story together with it really being you know, about 20 years since the band started. Does it seem like any of that ended up finding its way into playing into how this record sounds and, and, and exists? I think that the experience of, of being on the road and, and doing the concerts around Bright Lights kind of refreshed our, our minds and, and bodies about what live feels like and, and sort of solidified this idea that this is where the songs wind up is, you know, here on the stage with our, with our fans in front of us. 
And I think we kind of kept uh, a sense of that in the recording studio. Like, let's not let's like let's let this record capture a live feeling. And so that sort of means not too many overdubs and you know really run them down performances where it's sort of not not about stopping and fixing or doing 50 takes and then you know piecing it all together it's just more the band in the room playing straight to tape and and I think by being on the road with with bright lights it just got us in that headspace of that sort of simplicity of live music cuz I know no band wants to you know be stuck in the past whatsoever it's always about moving forward but there is a sense of this one especially I guess compared to the last couple ones like man there's a really strong classic Interpol sound of this, which I don't think anybody's complaining about whatsoever. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, I think I'm, I'm super excited about this record. And if it if it sounds classic within the context of our sound, that, that sounds great to me, too. There was also the uh, the Banks and Steel stuff in there. You know, you, I know you'd always been you've always been a big hip hop fan. You know, that's where a lot that you came from uh, musically, you know, as far as youth goes, at least that I've read about anyway. And, and sort of a similar question, you know, it seems like to me, that would have been a dream to have had, you know, all of those artists being able to kind of do something with them. Was that, was that a good itch to finally scratch? It was. You know, it, it wasn't so much that there was an itch to, you know, record with, with necessarily those musicians. I think it was really just I'm a fan of the genre and I'm a huge fan of RZA's. And it turned out that RZA and I have a good creative dynamic. So, you know what I mean? It wasn't, I didn't really have expectations or I hadn't really had a formal thought in my mind, like one day, you know, I'll make a record like this. It was just that from a really good creative rapport that, that RZA and I have, you know, that record came out of that process. And then that, yeah, it allowed us to work with Method Man and Master Killa and Cool Keith is on there and Florence. It was, it was a fantastic experience. It was really great sort of grand collaborative process for me and just the timing of it all seems insane because doing that record touring that record touring the bright lights record and then i don't know at some point you found time to get inspired to go in and and write the marauder i mean where does that all come from you know this timing wise for you i mean all of these things do seem to take a long time behind the scenes the rizzo record we worked on for for years we were you know demoing tracks for that project. And with Interpol, I think it's just another kind of testament to, I think, the beauty of collaboration, because it's not, there's something very reactive when you have a good band chemistry. So if I'm, say, I'm stuck for ideas, but then Daniel starts playing an incredible chord progression, then all of a sudden I get a flood of ideas. So I think that's what keeps things refreshed. Uh, I think if you're a solo artist just putting out, you know, albums that you write and record, I think there's probably, uh, you're going to perhaps encounter that burnout of creativity sooner. But when you get to work with other people who sort of trigger your creativity and are filling in a lot of gaps in the total picture, then it's just really a joy of kind of um, bouncing around ideas with people. So that generates its own energy in a way. You, you seem to have fun with maybe the characters of the stories. I mean, I, and, and I say that in a way, like when I talk to a lot of artists, they'll write a song and they'll figure out what it means years later, kind of a thing subconsciously. Uh, there's something about yours yeah. that, that almost feels like, I don't know, like you're writing these tiny movies inside the songs. And, and we hear that, you know, as you talk about you know, what's going on in a song like number 10, uh, obviously the Rover, you know, in that first single. I mean, how, it, it, does that still, is that still sort of how it works for you this time around? I mean, are, are you kind of making mini movies or are these still like any other artist, maybe like stream of consciousness and like, oh, wow, that's a cool story that came from nowhere. Yeah, I think it's 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 a mixture of things. I definitely like the idea of them being mini movies. I often see a lot of visuals like I make I make loads of videos to our songs in my mind. 
Yeah, I think a song like The Rover did kind of write itself in that way where it's sort of like, uh, you know, a, a character outside of myself that I do sort of just fall into this world and it's sort of it is like following a character around and just thinking what would this person say and then there's a lot of fun in writing dialogue that would be if 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 it were like a screenplay that you're writing it's like dialogue that isn't you know close to your experience but it's something that you're fascinated by and you get to like write for the villain for instance <laughs> and i but i also think in terms of things being kind of cinematic you know there's the structure to to the music of a song so i think you know daniel has a great architecture to the pieces that he presents to the band and then filling you know the vocal component of that is also following that blueprint of where the music moves from section to section so it's it is a it's a, a collaborative process that i think allows us to get that cinematic quality and i should bring up the rover while we're here um i, I wonder if i'm reaching but it seems like you know when you have a song about sort of a cult figure, you know, preaching doomsday in a way. That seems like really interesting timing in in an era where narcissism is is sort of running rampants <laughs> around the country. And I, I wonder if there is any parallel with maybe what's happening in in the real world. I mean, I do think that there's a it's it's a fun thing. I think it is it's a resonant archetype. You know, this this person who sort of speaks without a filter or says very outlandish things that at the core of them is like a pretty simple message. And I think then what can happen is a large group of people can sort of just like identify with this simple message and they get caught up in the conviction of the person who's saying it. But that person may not be a, you know, a really measured thinker who's sort of taking a lot of things into that sort of a little bit more flash and bluster. And I feel like there's a part of us that sort of can respond to that. So it's I just think it's a human phenomena that happens often uh, and in a way I think maybe measured thinking is a little or subtle thinking might not appeal to you know uh, <laughs> oh <laughs> it's it's it's, a, it's just a gosh how do I dig myself out of this hole <laughs> I don't know I just think I think that uh, there's a there's a dynamic that can happen anywhere at any time in human history and that sort of, I think, the character of a cult leader speaking something very exaggerated and can resonate with a following. I think it's just something that happens through time, and it's it's an interesting phenomenon. So, and again, maybe I'm going down the wrong path, but it, the reason why I sort of went that direction, too, is because when I hear about the artwork, that it's in this long way tied to Richard Nixon and, and that whole campaign. And, and that's what I mean. It's like, man, there are all these things kind of swirling around, and maybe that's just the universe kind of put them in place like that but it, but it looks very interesting in that sense yeah i mean it's a very powerful image and i think it, it does it kind of resonates on a few different frequencies and you can look at it through different prisms whether it be that you know you see some kind of overtones of political commentary or a parallel with the landscape today or if you just look at it as a piece of photography which is just a striking shot of a guy at a table seemingly very vulnerable and very powerful at the same time i think it just sort of it, it works in a number of ways and I feel, yeah, I feel lucky. I think the design came out great for this album cover. That the, that character in the rover, have you ever written multiple songs about one idea? Because it feels like there could be more to that story musically. Like, if you were ever looking for that, you know, that thematic string of songs, I feel like you've got it right there. Yeah, there could be a longer arc to that character for sure. I think, I mean, it was sort of fun when we when we did the video for that song. The The narrative that we sort of set up there became like the prequel to what you hear in the song. And so it's like, wow, this character, you know, we've already sort of started to build that world where he exists beyond just the lyrics to the track. And so, yeah, we've got a prequel, we've got the song, and then maybe there could be, a, you know, the saga continues, you know, the rover 
goes west. <laughs> what, what what is it usually? It's, it's, it's usually here. like yeah, it takes it takes New York or it takes Manhattan. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know, <laughs> And I, and I guess that sort of segs into how you've talked about maybe the, the bigger character in it uh, behind, you know, the Marauder um, as, as sort of a version of a past you in a, in a way. I, like, I'd wondered, like, is this the type of character you hear about the next day? Like, what the hell happened last night type of character? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I sort of don't have, I've never had the experience of sort of waking up and saying, like, what did I do? You know, I've never had a blackout, but I think it definitely, it's it's that part of, yeah, it's that part of you that maybe wakes up with some thoughts of like, what, <laughs> what's going on with my life? I think it is a little bit, um, it's that loose, messy part of us that, that comes up sometimes, the, uh, the irresponsible, reckless part. Because, you know, again, and in, in, in it's an, an age that you're able to finally look at that. What I, what I wonder is, you know, for a lot of artists, the next, the, the next turn that you would be looking at is, I don't know, the midlife album, I guess, is what it comes to. Like, oh, and, and this is what happens now to that guy. Yeah, well, I mean, but I think, you know, this idea of a marauder, you know, that could be an approach that you take to the stock market. It's, I think it's something that's always there. It's that part of you that sort of walks a little too close to the edge. It's, it's not really, uh, you know localized just to youth i think it's you know it's just that wild streak that i think we all have i want to ask about another song because i don't know anything about it and it's become one of my favorites it's the one that closes the record uh called it probably matters i've really been hooked on that one Uh, you know and it comes across in so in in several different ways to me like in one sense i heard it as an apology and and in another sense i heard it as a reflection um and I, i was wondering if you could talk about what's what what might be happening in that song I mean, I think that it's kind of like you, you can come through an experience with a little gem of wisdom, uh, and that that gem of wisdom, like, you're going to carry that sort of forward. So it's it's also kind of like, all right, how does this uh, information impact, you know, my next move? And so, but it's sort of through this dark phase or this, you know, traumatic event that happened that you gain this wisdom. So there is sort of a, you know, there's, a, there's an upside that you're a wiser person now, but then there's that sense of what next and... and um, you know, am I going to, how long will I carry this piece of wisdom or will it just get lost in my satchel? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a, I, I don't know about an apology. I think it's a little bit just more reflective. And then there's that sense of looking ahead with some encouragement. Your vocals are doing a really cool strut sort of in that uh, almost, um, I don't know, as I hear it anyway, uh, a little bit of that Sinatra Vegas, a uh, little Tom Jones, whatever you Ooh, Yeah, I like that. <laughs> little loungy it's a little loungy i mean and of course against the music you have a very interpol-esque type of song going on behind that but but yeah there's a bit of a strut over that and yeah i mean i like that that term uh (laughs) strut sounds good and and i definitely yeah it's cool i think it's that was a piece of music that i was really really partial to while we were building this record that was a song that i really wanted to get the vocal right and i just felt like we were we were on to something it was it's an atmosphere that i think is is really nice in that track in particular, and I think Fridman did a great job helping us realize that it, it becomes this quite a broad, expansive song. But I think I did kind of, I, I think the atmosphere in my mind when you bring up like lounge singers or crooners, that did feel like the atmosphere that it evoked for me in the first place. And then I think we got to even take it further. I love it. Uh, we have heard a little bit about, you know, there, there were several songs left off of this that could have easily been on the record given a different track list. A lot of those get left behind, but is there any desire to to maybe put those out in some fashion before you know the anniversary edition rolls around? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think we we certainly we've every song that we finished we really like. 
So I think sometimes you do have to edit an album and you do have to kind of curate which songs best complement each other. But that doesn't mean that, you know, a song that might get left off is any less good, really. There's just, you know, they can't all come to the party. So I think we definitely have some intention of uh, letting that music be heard. Yeah, but cool. uh, more to come on that. <laughs> all right. We're baited. <laughs> Uh, well, well, thank you, Paul, so much for this. And again, congratulations on the Marauder, and I really do mean that. Uh, I love this record, and uh, and I can't wait to see how this one sounds uh, sounds live out there. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, man. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And my thanks to Paul Banks. Again, the new Interpol record is called The Other Side of Make-Believe. Thanks to you as well for checking out the episode and the series. I hope you hit that subscribe button. Again, three brand new interviews every single week sent to you. New ones every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at iTunes, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, NPR, WFPK.org, or YouTube for the video versions. Anywhere you get your podcast from, subscribe to Kyle Meredith with. And then after that, head over to WFPK.org, where I do a show Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern. An hour full of song premieres, music news, anniversary spins, bonus interviews, Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern, at WFPK.org. Consequence has your music and film news. You can also find me on the uh, social media spots, uh, Facebook, Instagram, mostly Twitter. All three addresses are uh, at Kyle Meredith. And I do hope you like and follow along. That does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media.